From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Crisis at the Border. Host Leif Anderson, NAE President, talks with Matthew Sorens, the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. Let's join in. I'm Leif Anderson, President of the NAE, here with Matt Sorens. Uh, Matthew Sorens has served with World Relief, which is the humanitarian arm of the NAE, for 13 years. He is currently the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization, and he seeks to help churches understand the complexities of immigration from a biblical perspective. He previously worked as a Department of Justice accredited legal counselor at World Relief's local office in DuPage County, Illinois, and before that, he worked with World Relief Nicaragua. Matt is co-author of Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate, and a second book entitled Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis. So I've known Matt for a long time, and he is smart and winsome and helpful and uh, just a, a great fellow Christian. So thank you for joining us today, Matt. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Leif. So I should mention that uh, you and I were part of a group. We, we took a trip just recently to the U.S.-Mexico border with other leaders of the Evangelical Immigration Table. And for those that don't know the EIT, it's a coalition of Christian organizations seeking immigration reform. And while there at the border, I learned a lot from you, Matt, and from others who were there. So Matt, let's get a big picture, uh, a broad picture of uh, what's going on at the border. Yeah, the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border has changed a lot in the last year or two. Um, really, for about a decade, we've seen a pretty steady decline in the number of people arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border with the intention of, of coming in uh, without a visa unlawfully or of seeking asylum, which is people who may not have a visa but show up at the port of entry and say, I'm here because I'm fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution on account of particular reasons under U.S. law. So those numbers have been declining, and then the last year or so, they've picked up very dramatically. So we're at a point right now where this year will likely be on par with, it hasn't been this high in about a decade or so, a little bit longer. Um, still lower than the levels of around 2000, but much uh, higher than it was a year or two ago. And one of the big dynamics that we're seeing that's different is it used to be that people who, who were showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border were primarily... Um, they were trying to sneak into the country to go find a job somewhere in the United States. And they were mostly adults and mostly in, uh, for most of recent history from Mexico. Now what we're seeing is several shifts. Um, most of those people who are coming are not trying to sneak in. They are looking for the border patrol. Uh, sometimes after having gone to the port of entry and being told because of some policy changes that they needed to wait weeks or months. So then they go out to the desert and look for the border patrol to request asylum. And most of them are not Mexican. They're primarily from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And most of them are families, um, either adults with children or in many cases, unaccompanied children. And that's a, a very different dynamic. And we're seeing a real humanitarian crisis at the border because our systems were really, their law enforcement structures designed to apprehend adults. They're not facilities designed to care for children. And that's causing a real crisis at the moment. So in the history of things, if I've got this right, migration back and forth across what is now the U.S.-Mexico border has been going on for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Indigenous people, the Spanish from Mexico, uh, the United States, but uh, people have been coming to the U.S.-Mexico border 
more recently in a different way, as you've just mentioned, for decades. So how is this situation unique in a place where there's long been migration? Yeah, I mean, I think to me, the single biggest factor that makes this different is so many children. I mean, we're close to half the people who have arrived in the past few months have been children. And we can't treat a six-year-old or a 10-year-old the same way we would treat a 25-year-old or a 40-year-old. Um, of course, I think any of us would, would have agreed that children don't make a decision to come in the first place. And and the reasons that they're coming are also somewhat distinct. I mean, I'm sympathetic to someone coming fleeing poverty and looking for a better life. Um, that was my ancestor's story to come to the United States. But many of the people who are coming are expressing a fear of, of violence and of persecution, which is consistent with very high rates of, of gang violence in particular and of, of homicide in those particular countries of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. A lot of the individuals coming, not all, some are just saying I'm fleeing poverty, but many of them would tell you if you asked why they're coming, a pretty horrific story of, of fleeing violence mm -hmm. and trying to protect their family from being killed or, or raped or otherwise harmed. Well, let me tell you a, a horrific story um, th that I learned um, when we were together on the border. And then I, I wanna ask you what, what's gonna happen here. So the story was a man who was at a, a place we visited who was sort of, I don't know, dejected. And the story was, he was in Central America in his home. His 11-year-old daughter was raped, and he went to the leader of the local gang and pleaded with him to not take his daughter again. And he went home, and then later, not much later, they machine-gunned his house, just strafed it back and forth. And as I understand the story, he and his family fled out the back door and were able to escape and then made the distance and came to the United States. And now he has his daughter and his family across the border in the United States and they, they're seeking asylum. What, what are the chances that he is gonna be allowed to stay in the United States with his family? And if he's not allowed, then what happens? Yeah. Um those sort of stories are devastating. And as a dad of, of three kids, you know, it hurts just to hear the story. And it hurts a little bit more because I know that, that there's an uphill climb for him to be able to stay safely in the United States with his family, which doesn't mean it's necessarily impossible, but uh, just to kind of work through what happened. So they show up at the border. If they enter the country without inspection, without a visa, they're usually looking for the border patrol. They are they present their uh, initial claim to asylum. They say, I have, this is my story. I'm afraid to go back for these reasons. The border patrol does this credible fear interview to see if they have a, really if they have a chance of winning an asylum claim. And the standards there is, is fairly low because, because the US as a matter of policy doesn't want to send anyone back accidentally to a situation where they'll be harmed. So what was happening um, as recently as last week was most of those families were being screened. Of course, they check and make sure they're not, you know, there's no criminal history, anything like that. They usually put an ankle bracelet on that father and on them, you know, on any other adults present, and then they'd release them uh, in the on the U.S. side of the border. Usually coordinating with uh, groups like the the shelter we were at, which was working with various local churches there in El Paso. From there, usually a family like that has extended family somewhere in the United States, so they might stay a few days in El Paso and get on a bus and go to Chicago or to Washington or to Los Angeles, and then they get an asylum court date, and that's where it gets complicated because. Under the law, you have a right to request asylum to, to win an asylum case. The burden of proof is on the applicant to prove that they have a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. 
that's the legal definition going back decades in the United States. And so the, the question then is, well, what is his persecution based on? And that's where it gets kind of tricky. Um, fleeing someone who wants to, to rape your daughter is not your race or religion or your political opinion. It might be your social group, and that's sort of the creative argument that many immigration legal professionals have made, and in many cases, won asylum cases in the past several years, um, when you could prove that the gang violence was what was causing you to flee and that the local police law enforcement was either unable or unwilling to assist you. Then uh, around a year ago, former Attorney General Sessions used his authority as uh, the head of the Justice Department, which is what immigration judges are part of. They're not independent judges. To basically clarify that you cannot apply based on your social group for asylum if you are fleeing what was called private violence. That is to say, violence perpetrated by someone other than a state, which means that the odds of winning that asylum claim went dramatically down. Um, and that's a pretty harsh reality. It's still, you know, there may be some loopholes where they might qualify for something, and they're much more likely to qualify if they have legal representation. Um, but it's really hard. You don't get an attorney assigned to you in an asylum case. It's if, some, if you can pay for it or if there's a nonprofit like World Relief or others who can come in and provide assistance. And there's just not enough supply of legal assistance to meet the demand. And then it's the last thing I would say to be aware of is that that was in some ways that father was fortunate that he was allowed into the United States because while it was the vast majority of asylum seeking families were being allowed in under those circumstances with that ankle bracelet to make sure they show up for court. Um, Sometime in the, in, the, in the last few weeks, we've seen a shift where the vast majority of people are actually being returned to Mexico and being expected to wait for their asylum claim in Mexico. Um, for, I mean, they can wait months and months. We met people in a, a little church-based shelter who had a two months till their next hearing, and that's just the first hearing. And one of the real challenges there is it's a lot harder to find authorized U.S. legal professionals who live in Mexico. There's, there's not that many of those people. And... Um, the numbers are, are backing up now, and it makes it far less likely that most of those people will really have a fair chance at, at winning an asylum claim, even though their fear of persecution of violence may be very credible and very real. What are conditions like on both sides of the border? So, I mean, live, day by day, living conditions, what's it like for people who um, are on the Mexico side seeking to come to the United States or after they've crossed the border and they're waiting for a court date? What, what, what's it like there? Yeah, I mean, I'd start maybe on the U.S. side. Most of these people are staying along the border on the U.S. side for just a few days, and then they're moving on to somewhere else in the country. And they kind of get dispersed because this is a big country. Um, you know, the numbers are quite large of people arriving, but you disperse them and it's hardly noticeable. It's and not most their of them choice, but the government's dispersing them, you mean? No, the government basically asks, where do you want to go? And they'll say, well, my cousin lives in New York or my sister lives in, in San Francisco or wherever. Sometimes it's a friend. Okay. Um, so, so they they're, they're not they rely they're on their not families. Doing anything illegal. They're not doing anything nope. illegal by going from the, nope. the Texas they've been and they've got an ankle bracelet on most of the time to make sure they show up for court there in the immigration court in Chicago or New York or wherever they're headed to. Um, and and by the way, people do show up. I mean, there's this misconception that well, none of these people show up for court. That's that's the point of the ankle bracelet is if they don't show up. There's a GPS tracker and you go and get them. I'm actually much more concerned at this point about the conditions on the Mexican side of the border, which is at the moment at least seems where it to be where the majority of asylum seekers are being required to stay. I mean, many of those border communities are, are really not safe communities. I mean, we, we talked to the border patrol who, um, while El Paso is a very safe city, it's one of the safest cities in the United States, actually, they are very well aware of the, the drug cartels and, and other forms of violence that happen over in Ciudad Juarez. And I should be quick to mention, there's also amazing brothers and sisters in Christ in Ciudad Juarez who are doing all they can to care for these vulnerable families. 
Um, but there are some bad people over there and there is just not enough space. There's not enough resources. And whereas in El Paso or in San Diego or, you know, elsewhere on the U.S. side of the border, people are staying for a few days and then dispersing. So it doesn't create this sort of building up dynamic in Juarez or Tijuana or elsewhere along the Mexican side of the border. People are just there to wait for a month for their court hearing. And I mean, they could theoretically go elsewhere in Mexico, I suppose, but most of them are waiting there at the border for their hearing and the numbers are quickly accumulating. And unless the Mexican government decides to, to remove them, um, you know, it's a little bit unclear what could happen there, but it's, it's a pretty troubling situation. And especially when you've got all these children involved. Okay. So what are the numbers? I mean, how, how many are we talking about here? Well, just so um, the numbers are changing sort of day by day, so it's it's hard to keep track. But for example, the last um, data I've seen for people arriving at the U.S.-Mexican border, and this includes both those who were apprehended crossing unlawfully, but also those who showed up at the port of entry at the bridge from the Mexico to the U.S. over the Rio Grande and said, I'd like to request asylum. The numbers in May were up over 140,000 um, just in one month, which for a comparison point, um, May of 2018, they were about 50,000. Um, May of, of 2017, they were about 20,000, which was a super low level, as low as we've seen in decades. Um, but the numbers have gone up really dramatically. Not all of those people are there to request asylum, but at this point, the majority are. And again, uh, even a few years ago, the majority of people apprehended were there to try to find a job, and they were sent back pretty quickly. That's where we have this challenge, is the law doesn't allow our government to just send people back if they have a, a credible fear of persecution. And there's good reasons for that. We, we don't want people to be sent back to violence. But our government, and over decades, this isn't one administration or one Congress, but has invested lots of money in sort of a border security response and a, a defensive response, but not re as much re resources in asylum processing. So to get a date for an asylum court hearing can take months and then you probably get another hearing after that. And the process literally can go on years before you get a decision on an asylum hearing. And the effect of that is both to keep people with legitimate claims for asylum in a very desperate situation, relying on the assistance of family or friends or churches or others um, without work authorization for a very long time and in uncertainty. And frankly, it incentivizes people who don't have a strong claim, who who might have sympathetic stories, but are not fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution, they've got a bit of an incentive to come because they might get to stay a year or two in the United States waiting for their court date before they'll be sent back. And so what we've said at World Relief is we really should be investing in increased capacity to adjudicate asylum claims, to make sure that there's due process, that we're treating everyone humanely in the process. But so that, I mean, if people came and were either approved or denied on a on a more reasonable time frame with, you know, we want them to be able to access legal counsel and all those things. I, I think we would see the situation wouldn't be nearly as, as desperate as, as it is right now. Many who come must know that the odds are against them, that by the time they go to court and go through the process, that they're going to be returned to their home country. I assume that they know that. So why did they come even though they realize that they may be sent back? You know, I, I'd be curious how many know that. I think that a lot of people have been told things that are not true by smugglers. That, and, and in some ways, our national story feeds into that, right? It's this is the United States. They have a sign up on the front of their Statue of Liberty: "Give me your tired, your poor, your teeming masses yearning to breathe free." And they also all know someone who went to the United States 20 years ago and has lived that dream and has been in a much better situation. So I don't know what percentage 
you know, really understand what the odds of them being approved or denied are. And frankly, I think it would be in the United States interest to do a better job in Central America of communicating what our actual policies are. Um, because not everyone will qualify who gets to the United States, even if they have a very sad story. And I would also say, I think we should have more processes in place in the, you know, for it to be possible to go to the consulate in Guatemala City or in Tegucigalpa or in San Salvador and request a work-based visa when your intention is to go and work, especially when we have a three and a half, four percent unemployment rate and a lot of needs for labor in the United States. And then those people wouldn't make that dangerous journey, um, but they could have the opportunity to come either temporarily or on a permanent basis. But I do, at the end of the day, this is a story of desperation. Uh, whether people are fleeing something that qualifies for asylum, like persecution for by a government, that's a very clear case. A lot of people fleeing from Nicaragua or Venezuela right now meet that story. Or they're really not going to qualify. Nobody makes that incredibly dangerous journey unless they're absolutely desperate, unless they see no other option to to have a life for themselves and for their families. And I, I think it's worth noting that so many of these people are brothers and sisters in Christ um, who are also... They have a certain amount of trust that the United States wouldn't send someone back to a terrible situation, but they also really deeply trust in God to provide for them. And I, I was humbled hearing some of the stories when we were there together, Lise, of, of, of brothers and sisters, and many of them evangelical Christians. These are actually the three countries people are fleeing from are the most evangelical countries in Latin America. Uh, about half the country is evangelical and most of the rest is Catholic. But these are people who are um, relying on Jesus to sustain them. And it really, I mean, it had me in tears at a few different moments. The relationship of the United States to Central American countries, um, you've already raised it on what could be done in Tegucigalpa or other, other countries' capitals. And the focus has particularly been on what's called the Northern Triangle, so that's El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And one of the proposals is to cut off foreign aid to these countries to give the governments an incentive so that they will deal with it in their countries in order to have our foreign aid. So what's your overall assessment on how this impacts all that's going on, or especially yeah, when it I, happens? Yeah, well, at the moment we're speaking, it has happened, um, and it could be reversed. Um, I'm, I'm actually praying it will be, because I think it is, um, first of all, just very counter-effective. I, I mean, whatever you think of these people, they are desperate people. Um, they are fleeing poverty and violence and corruption. And to the extent that U.S. foreign aid programs help address those situations, and there are really effective programs doing so, um, that minimizes the number of people who feel they have no choice but to leave. And if we pull that back, there will just be more people facing poverty and corruption and violence, and more people will leave. And, and there's the other misconception is, well, this is going to government. It's not mostly going to the Honduran government or the Salvadoran government or the Guatemalan government. It's mostly going to non-governmental organizations contracted by the U.S. government, many of them faith-based organizations like World Vision or International Justice Mission or the Association for a More Just Society, which is an amazing organization in Honduras working on human rights and, and corruption issues tied to Calvin College. Those organizations are able to do much more work because of support from the U.S. government, and that work will, will, will basically cease or, or be a lot less, and we will see more people show up at the U.S.-Mexico border, almost certainly. And, and it's also, for the majority of people who weren't ever going to leave, they will suffer, and they are suffering. And so I, I'm really troubled by the decision, and I hope it is reversed as quickly as possible. You see it as counterproductive, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, beyond being un just wrong, it is also, it will create more migration mm -hmm. for really obvious reasons. 
I mean, frankly, the only reason to enact that policy that I, that makes sense to me is if you legitimately think that these in, these literally hundreds of thousands of people who are showing up are not desperate people acting out of desperation, but they are pawns of a malicious government trying to harm the United States. And I'm not here to defend the governments of those countries, which are, are complicated, but I have met too many of these people to think that they are just some sort of governmental agents coming to you know, harm the United States. I think that's a, a conspiracy theory that is really not founded in any fact. And if to the extent that they are vulnerable people fleeing either poverty or violence or some combination thereof, to the extent that we make uh, we take away programs to help alleviate poverty and violence and corruption, more of them will feel they have no choice but to come to the U.S. or to Costa Rica. Or I mean, some of these people go elsewhere. Some of them do seek asylum in Mexico, but they just have to flee because they're in danger. There's so much disagreement over all of this. And the one point of agreement seems to be that there's a crisis, that we really do have a current crisis at our border. But where we don't have agreement is what we should do about that. So, I mean, it's, is that a correct overall assessment? And if so, what, what can be done about this? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a correct assessment. I, I think there's probably, though, more agreement than people realize um, when we actually sit down and talk about the realities. Uh, what we've said in, uh, for the crisis at the border, but really for the, the other longer standing issues around immigration, it should be hard to immigrate illegally to the United States. And um, we've maintained now as a world relief, we should have secure borders. We should not allow anyone into the country without knowing who they are. But the flip side of that is it should be easier, not, not without limit, but it should be easier to immigrate legally to the United States. And part of the reason we see this asylum seeker crisis is because seeking asylum, showing up at the border, you can't request asylum in your country of origin, you know, you can't go to a consulate and ask for this. But if you get to the border, you have the right to request asylum. And when we've made that in some ways the only legal avenue for people to have an option at legal migration to the United States or the, you know, a small possibility at it, many people are going to try that because they want to do things right. And it is legal to request asylum. Um, so we've said it should be easier in any number of ways to immigrate legally to the United States. Yes, for those fleeing persecution, but also for those seeking employment um, when there's lots of jobs available. That ought to be possible at, you know, at the consulate in your country of origin without making a dangerous trip. And also to be reunited with family. And right now, I mean, I met uh, one young man from El Salvador who was just coming to be with his mother. And he might also be fleeing persecution. We didn't get it deep enough into his story. But I would like his mother to be able to file a petition for him and bring him on an airplane. That would be a much better process in my mind than for him to be waiting months in, in Ciudad Juarez for an asylum claim. And then ultimately, we also need to address this longstanding issue of well, what about the people who are here in this country unlawfully? And what we've long said is we don't think... An amnesty is a solution that says the law doesn't matter, so we'll just ignore this. We also don't think deporting families who at this point have been here for a decade or two decades, you know, taking U.S. citizen kids from their parents, we don't think that's the solution either. We think there ought to be some way for people to come forward, admit they've broken a law, either overstaying a visa at some point or, or crossing the border unlawfully at some point, have them pay a fine, which is, you know, a form of restitution. This is not a free pass, not amnesty but being able to earn the chance to stay and to work lawfully in the United States. And eventually, if they want to, which I think the vast majority do, to become Americans, to be able to seek that process of becoming U.S. citizens. And I mean, I go to an, a, a church, it's a Spanish-speaking church, where most of my uh, people in the pews down from me are, are immigrants. And some of them are naturalized citizens already. Almost all of them are desperate for that opportunity. They love this country, and, and they want, and they are contributing to it, but they want the certainty to be able to contribute more and to, to be known to know that they are, are seen as a part of this country just as they desire to be. 
that's a good overview of addressing the, the big issue. Let, let's go back for a few minutes to the U.S.-Mexico border. And you indicated earlier that the number of uh, Mexican nationals coming to the United States, I think it's actually a, a net negative. There's, there's more people going from the United States into Mexico than Mexico into the United States. But if they're coming from Central America or other places, that puts Mexico really in the middle. So yeah. you have desperate people in Central America that want to get out, and you have the United States government, which is struggling with how to deal with this, and there's Mexico right in the middle. So how is Mexico, and the government in particular, how are they responding to this? Yeah, you know, it's a very dynamic situation, even as we speak. There's, you know, it, it's a little unclear, and of course they have a new administration in Mexico. Mexico has politics too. Like we often think about this through the framework of U.S. politics, but uh, Mexican politicians are thinking about their voters who live in Mexico, uh, not in Central America, not in the United States. Um, I'd say historically, a lot of Central Americans have had a, a very difficult journey through Mexico because these migration patterns go back to the civil wars in Central America in the 80s. Um, there also are, of course, amazing people in, in Mexico who are, are doing all they can to be compassionate and caring for struggling people. And that includes a lot of people in, in churches within Mexico, both Catholic and, and Protestant. Um, in terms of the policies, Mexico is under a lot of pressure from the United States right now and with you know threats of tariffs and that sort of thing to keep people from reaching the United States um, where they could request asylum. And in some ways, there's a pretty clear parallel to what's happened in Europe, uh, where the European Union has made a deal with Turkey to basically, you know, Turkey, you catch these people, don't let them reach Europe where under our laws, they have a right to request asylum. Um, I don't think that if we are able to convince Mexico to apprehend everyone and keep them from reaching the United States, I don't think that's a response I would be proud of as an American. I think that we have space in the United States for legitimate asylum seekers. Um, we actually have space for, for other immigrants as well. They're contributing in a lot of ways. And I think we need to follow the law. We need to, need to respect the law. But that law that allows someone to request asylum if they reach our border is, is actually a good law. And there's good reasons most of these folks would prefer not to request asylum in Mexico. There, there are serious issues with violence, especially in the border regions. And most of them have family who are in the United States, not in Mexico. And if they have to flee, um, they would both prefer to be with their family and they're going to integrate better if they are assisted by family in the process. On both sides of the border, there's engagement by churches and there's engagement by nonprofit organizations like World Relief and others that you've mentioned. So what, what are they doing? What, what are each doing? And, and are they coordinating together, the churches and the nonprofits? Yeah, I mean, I'll certainly speak for World Relief. We, our mission is to empower the church. So we're doing as much as we can through local churches. Um, one thing that we're doing in, in as many locations as we can and as resources allow is connecting families as they show up in different parts of the United States. If they happen to show up in one of the communities where World Relief has an office, um, you know, we've got volunteers, and frankly, we've got volunteers who were ready to welcome refugees arriving at the airport who, because of some policy changes, are, are not arriving in very significant numbers. But we can connect some of those to a family seeking asylum who is there, perhaps with their extended family, but would like to be connected to a local church, would like to just have an American friend. Um, so we see that happening through our work, but other churches and, and organizations are doing that as well throughout the U.S. Um, there's also it's an amazing effort of, of churches. Uh, we were with a uh, uh, an evangelical church in, in El Paso that is helping coordinate among various churches actually to run some of the shelters on the U.S. side of the border. And the same is happening on the Mexican side of the border, giving people, literally people sleeping on, on pews um, to when there's no more space, but as a safe place for them while they figure out their next steps. 
And um, yeah, I think there's always room for better coordination, but that's happening across the border on both the U.S. side and the Mexican side. And it, to me, it's, it's a picture of God's kingdom really breaking in into a very dark situation. And um, we've had people who've made that journey, just as we have with refugees who fled elsewhere in the world and eventually made it to the United States, who will say, you know, all along the journey, it was the church that met me. It was followers of Jesus. And we hear that from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We hear it sometimes, especially outside, you know, not in the Latin American context as much, but in the Middle East or elsewhere from people who are Muslims or other religious backgrounds. And they are, they're drawn to Jesus when they see people representing Jesus the way that we're called to in Matthew 25, giving food to those who are hungry, a drink to those who are thirsty and welcoming those who are strangers. Matt, some of us learn from uh, statistics. Uh, some of us, maybe more of us, learn from stories. So how about a story of a church or a nonprofit that uh, you see making a difference at the border? Yeah, you know, the, the one, of course, closest to my mind is the church uh, that helped us coordinate our trip recently. It's a St. Clement's, an Anglican church in, um, in El Paso. And along with actually a number of other churches in that community, over the last several months, as the number of, of asylum-seeking families being released there in El Paso by the government went up pretty significantly. And again, it's, it's dropped in just in the last few weeks uh, because of some policies just, but there was as many as a thousand people being turned, being released per day. And, um, you know, they've had people sleeping there in their, in their church's space. Um, making sure they have access to showers, having volunteers from the church uh, there to just to, to listen to them, to, to minister to them, to pray with them. Again, many of these people are coming with Bible verses memorized in their minds that are sustaining them. And um, to me, that was just such a beautiful image of the work of the church and the opportunity that we have to be faithful to God's commands to, to practice hospitality. You often speak at churches and talk about this and have question and answer times. So imagine yourself in a situation that you've probably often been in, and there's a Q&A time, and someone says, all right, we're 1,000, we're 2,000 miles away from the U.S.-Mexican border. Well, what are we supposed to do? Well, how do we engage in this? And how do you answer that question? Yeah, I would say on a few levels. One is is to pray, and I don't say that just as sort of a, you know, casual Christian thing to mention, but I really believe the church needs to be in prayer over the, for the people fleeing, for their countries of origin, for our, our elected officials who've got tough decisions to make, for the border patrol who have an important job and are usually doing the best they can, but with, a, with very limited resources and really with a job they didn't sign up for of diapering children and taking care of families. I would also say the church could be about advocacy of the, the evangelical immigration table that the NAE has been a part of for a number of years with, with various other evangelical groups is a great tool for that um, to find opportunities to encourage elected officials to advocate for public policies that we think are very consistent with biblical principles. Um, and a lot of these issues actually have a systemic center, right? I mean, unless policies change, there's not really a silver bullet where the church can solve the, the situation of that man you meant met in the facility there in El Paso. And then looking at the root causes of this and coming alongside organizations and ministries and churches in Central America and frankly throughout the world, because the same dynamics are driving people to leave Africa and to leave different parts of the Middle East. Um, we do some of that in some parts of the world at World Relief, but there's other good ministries doing that as well. And churches can be financially invested there. And then lastly, the welcoming people to their communities, whether they are asylum seekers or they come 
formally as refugees vetted abroad and coming in on an airplane, or they're just other immigrants who have been in the community for many years. Uh, the church has such an important role to, of welcome, of showing God's love in tangible ways, whether that's operating English classes or just helping people understand how the U.S. culture works, how to go grocery shopping in our country, or how to understand your mail, how to help get your kids into school. Um, those are all things, and, and we do that at World Relief, working with hundreds and probably thousands of partner churches around the U.S. Uh, there's so many opportunities to show God's love to immigrants. And in the process, many of them we find are already strong believers who breathe new life into the church in the United States. Others are not yet believers who, as they are welcomed by the local church, we have the opportunity, as First Peter 3 says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's within you. And frankly, it's rare that sooner or later those immigrant families don't ask that question if they're not already followers of Jesus. And we see people coming into God's family in the process. One last question. It's sort of a summary question of everything we've talked about, but I think it's also kind of a hard question about the future. So what do you see happening? Do you see a resolution to this crisis? And if so, what would it take to get to where we need to go? You know, I, I don't know if I want to predict this, but my prayer very genuinely is that the, the evangelical church in the United States would play a role that I think we are uniquely situated to do in standing up with immigrants, recognizing that so many of them, as I've heard you say, Lee, are us. I mean, immigrants are growing the church in the United States. And with that, I hope that we would use our leverage in the political process, in just the way that we are in every community in the country, to be communicate very clearly that we are there to stand with immigrants. Yes, we want to respect the law. Yes, we believe we should have secure borders. But first and foremost, we recognize that immigrants are people made in God's image whom are our neighbors, whom we are called to love, who are people who, for whom Jesus died. And I would love for us to have that reputation. And, and I think if we can get to that point, I, I'd be lying if I said we had that reputation universally at this moment, but if we would get to that point, and that would take pastors preaching on this issue from a biblical perspective, it would take really challenging Christians in the pews to look at how does the Bible speak to this issue? I think it could make the difference in terms of things like immigration policy. You know, last year, there was this family separation policy that I think a lot of evangelical Christians, like many other Americans, were very troubled by. And it was largely stopped because I, I really believe evangelical Christians started to speak up, many of whom had, who are strong supporters of President Trump, others of whom maybe are not. But there was such a clear message saying, you know, we may disagree on a lot of issues, but this one's pretty clear. We don't take moms from their, you know, we don't take small children from their mothers. And we saw that policy reversed, and I really do believe it was in significant part the voices of evangelical Christians speaking up. And my prayer is that we would speak up on a larger level to address a number of the other systemic issues within our immigration system, and that we'd earn that reputation of being people who love and who welcome immigrants. Our guest on today's conversation has been Matthew Sarnes, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Matt. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.